Well, this morning, let's take up uh, Luke chapter 24. We will actually be uh, finishing, Lord willing, uh, this uh, gospel. I didn't check my notes to see how long ago that we started Luke, uh, the gospel of Luke, but it's been a while. Uh, so we've plowed all the way through the gospel of Luke up to chapter 24, and this morning we want to begin with verse 36. Uh, you may ask, what are you going to take up next? Well, because of some issues that have arisen and are arising, I'm going to be dealing with uh, the office of deacon. And so looking at the qualifications and especially the not only just the qualifications of what's necessary, but just the things that need to be done uh, within the house of God that uh, because of whatever reason not necessarily being taken care of or to remind ourselves they do need to be taken care of or uh, to stir us up to continue to be faithful in them. And so we're going to be looking at then the office of deacon, what is required, uh, the general requirements as far as the duty itself is concerned. And then, of course, as we are an individual church, then there will be certain things that will be uh, true to us here. Obviously, that wouldn't be true to some other church because of the, whatever the particular circumstances and situations that we do have. And so we want to be teaching on that um, Office. There's only two offices in the New Testament church, and that's the one is elder, pastor, uh, bishop, whatever you want to call him, preacher normally, or the minister. And then the other is, of course, the office of deacon. And so we'll be looking at that, just in case you were wondering where we were going to go next. And then after that, Lord willing, we will probably be going, uh, I said Lord willing now, we will be going to the book of Joshua. So it gives you an idea of something of the out line and outlay of what we'll be looking at. But today we need to finish up, though, Gospel of Luke, and we want to take up verse uh, 36 and actually go down through verse 53, that's my hope, of the 24th chapter of the book of Luke. Now, just a little bit of introduction here. We see that this is at the beginning of this chapter. We saw the resurrection of Jesus Christ after three days and three nights, whatever the biblical terminology of that meant. We know that our Lord was arisen from the dead. If we, if we were to find his tomb, which we will, don't know where it's at, but if we just say we could stumble across it and we were to look in into it today, I assure you there would be no body of the Lord Jesus Christ. He has risen from the dead. Not only that, but he has ascended into heaven and he is at God's right hand and there he will stay until he comes back for his own at the end of this world. Uh, Though this, of course, was broadcast pretty plainly throughout the Old Testament as well as through the gospel accounts as Jesus was teaching, his disciples, though, just didn't get it. They, because of the slowness of their hearts, the hardness of their hearts, and just the fact of unbelief itself, they refused to come to the grips, as it were, to the realities of the resurrection of Christ. In fact, several of his disciples, both men and women, had actually seen the empty tomb and even the appearance of Christ himself. And as they go and tell others, as we saw in this chapter, uh, they did not believe. Now, last time, though, we looked at the passages that spoke of his appearance to those two disciples that uh, were on the road to Emmaus. 
And it's there that, of course, Christ finally reveals himself to them. At first, these two men didn't recognize who he was. Uh, They were not aware of him. And he speaks to them concerning the things of the Scripture, the Old Testament that was in regards to him. And as we read in verse 26 and 27, he says, Ought not Christ to have suffered these things and entered into his glory? And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded unto them in all the Scriptures the things concerning himself. And so the Lord Jesus then is speaking to these disciples, though again, uh, the, the reality of who he is is hidden from them in their eye, from their eyes, and so they do not see, do not understand, but they do hear these wonderful words that our Lord speaks unto them. And as they finally come to the village where they're going to stay, they see that Jesus is actually going to go on off, but they beckon for him to stay, and he does. And he actually, he begins to eat with them. And as we see in verse 30, and it came to pass, as he said, it meet with them, he took bread and blessed it and break and gave to them. And their eyes were opened and they knew him and he vanished out of their sight. The scripture tells us. Well, they're all excited about this, obviously, and so they run back to Jerusalem. Uh, Again, we said that's about an eight-mile trip, so they didn't probably run the whole way. But they go back to Jerusalem as quickly as they can, and they begin to tell the disciples, at least uh, some of the disciples there, of what has transpired. And once again, the disciples refuse to believe. And we saw this in the parallel account back in Mark chapter 16. I'll just read it. And he says there in verse 13, And they went and told it unto the residue, neither believed they them. So here they come testifying that we have seen the Lord. He's uh, started to eat with us and then he's vanished out of our sight. And of course, they don't believe it. And so this begins then where we left off last Lord's Day at verse 36. Because it says, And they told what things, verse 35, were done in the way, and how he was known to them in the breaking of a bread. And it's at this period then, in verse 36, this takes place. And as they thus spoke, that as they spoke about seeing the Lord, him breaking bread with them, and then vanishing out of their sight, Jesus himself stood in the midst of them, and saith unto them, Peace be unto you. So here begins... Our study. And as they're retelling the events, probably very carefully and very surely, and trying to convince them that this stuff is true that we're telling them, they, all of a sudden, Jesus here, the Lord Jesus, appears unto them. Now, we don't know how many of the eleven are here. I don't believe Thomas is here at this point. And uh, if he is, this is, again, all this, how it actually ends up comparing the other parallel accounts. Again, all that can be kind of confusing. But I don't believe at this point Thomas, the uh, one of the apostles, is not here at this point. But notice he does say in the midst of this, peace be unto you. Uh, This is a type of greeting that was pretty often known of that day. But there's probably a lot more to it than just a hello that our Lord Jesus gives his disciple, unbelieving disciples here at this moment. He does, though, speak these words of peace to them. And think of this a moment. If Here they are, they're not believing the things that they ought to have believed, and yet he comes in amongst them. He's very patient, he's very kind, and he's very long-suffering, he's very temperate towards them, though he does upbraid them, as we'll see here in a few moments. He still says, though, to them here, Peace be unto you. Isn't it great? Isn't it a blessing to know that God just doesn't, when we sin, that He doesn't just come down in all of His wrath upon us and begin to work havoc upon us. Now, it's true, He does chasten His people. 
But again, he does so out of love. He does so in gentleness. And in the reason why he chastens us, of course, is to put us back on that road that we ought to be. And so he uses here some really some encouraging words to them. Peace be unto you. And then notice verse 37. But they were terrified and affrighted and supposed that they had seen a spirit. Now, instead of, again, believing what their eyes were seeing here there at this point, they instead were what? Notice, first of all, they're fearful. It says here they were terrified. They were affrighted. And then they act like it says here that they saw a ghost. Uh, the word spirit there would have the connotation in our language today of a ghost. You know, the uh, type of a spooky type of thing. They, were, they didn't believe that this was really the Lord in a bodily form. They thought this was just a spirit. Now, whether they thought it was the spirit of him or just any spirit, the, the text doesn't necessarily say. It says here they had thought they had seen a spirit. And so, again, instead of believing the things which the Scripture had told them, believing the things which the brethren themselves had reminded them of, and now with their own eyes, they still are in a state of unbelief. Now, of course... Again, we can be very hard on them and say, what a bunch of dummies these fellows are. They're just not getting it. But again, as we mentioned last time, how often, brethren, are we so slow to believe the truths of Scripture? And if we are quick to believe them, just think how slow we are, though, in putting those beliefs into practice. How often we have to be reminded, look, you need to be doing this. You need to be doing that. You need to be governing this aspect of your life. You need to be making sure of your your family in this, your job, all of these things that sometimes we are just very slow to be implementing into our lives. Well, we have no room to speak. Now, it's true. We have the completed Scripture. We can look back and say, aha, look how silly they were not seeing that. But again, with the completed Scripture, look how slow we are at times to believe and to heed God's Word. And then notice in verses 38 through 40, he questions them. He says, And he said unto them, Why are ye troubled? And why do thoughts arise in your hearts? Behold my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Handle me and see, for a spirit hath not flesh and bones, as ye see me have. And when he had thus spoken, he showed them his hands and his Feet. So we see here he, again, is speaking to them in such a way as to draw their minds to the truth. And notice here, he's actually reasoning with them. Now, he, obviously, he knows what they're thinking. He's God in the flesh, you know. So he knows what everything that they're thinking. He knows that some, some fears have arised in their hearts, according to verse 38. And they're thinking about it. And so... Him knowing this, knowing the needs of his people, he says here, I'm going to reason with you. I know that you think that you've seen a ghost, but I want to assure you here that you've not seen a ghost. Because does a ghost have, he says, hands and feet? Well, of course, we know that that's not so. Any of us who have grew up with Casper the Friendly Ghost knows that that's impossible. Those of us who are in the know, we know that Casper didn't have a body. He just had this spirit-looking white thing that he was on the cartoon about. Well, there was not flesh and blood, as it were, there. Some of you may not even know who Casper is, some of you young folks here. But that was one of the cartoon critters that uh, 
some at my age grew up with and some of a little younger as well. But we know that a ghost doesn't have flesh and blood. And so Jesus reasons wisdom that. Notice he says, look, behold my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Handle me, see, or and see, for a spirit hath not flesh and bones as ye see me have. Notice that. Touch me. Try me. See if it's real. So here again, he's condescending, as it were, down to their, to their level so that they will be assured that they haven't seen a ghost and it really is their resurrected Savior. This is their master whom they had walked with for some three years. And yes, truly did see the terrible things that were wrought upon him in the closing hours of his earthly life. But nonetheless, the scriptures were true. He has risen from the dead. Touch me, feel me. And know that it's so. Well, guess what? It still didn't get to them. Notice verse 41. And while they yet believed not. Now here again though, for joy and wondered, he said unto them, Have ye here any meat? So even at this point, after he tells them that reasons with them, look, I'm not a ghost. I have hands. I have arms. I have flesh. You know that that's just impossible if I was just a spirit. But yet they're still not fully convinced at this point. Notice in verse 41, it seems there that their emotions got in the way. How many of that happened to many of us? Rather letting truth penetrate our minds and our actings upon that, we allow our emotions to get away, to get away with ourselves and to become the master. Look what he says, or as Luke records here, and uh, or am I at verse 41? And while they yet, I remember read that again. And while they yet believed not, here's the reason why: for joy. They were so caught up with what was going on rather than thinking with their mind and and hearts as it ought to have been. Instead, they're getting emotional about it. Here again, we see something of the danger, brethren, of letting our emotions uh, go beyond the realities of truth. You know, even our emotions need to be kept in check. Nothing wrong with emotions in and of themselves. They're God-given. All of us have passions. We all have affections. Some, true, have more in measure than others. Some, like, the, for instance, the Jewish people themselves, they were very emotional folks. You can read David in the Psalms, him talking about his crying and his rejoicing. He had his ups and downs. He had those, what we would call today, those big swing moods, no doubt about it. Yet, at the same time, though, brethren, we have to remember that they can get in the way of our faith. Look what happened to them. And while they yet believed not for joy and wondered. So they're still troubled here, aren't they? They still aren't absolutely convinced that this is really the resurrected Lord before them. Well, to can help their faith, which was very weak at this point, further, notice what he does in verse 42 and 43. And they gave, or excuse me, verse 41, he says, Have ye here any meat? So he's going to, again, help them along in their faith. And so they gave him a piece of a broiled fish and of a honeycomb. And he took it and did eat before them. 
Well, to again, to further their weak faith along, what does he do? He gives a demonstration that he's real by eating the things that were set before him. Notice what he eats. A piece of broiled fish and a honeycomb. He had uh, meat and he had his sweets with his meal there, didn't he? He had fish and a honeycomb. And this was to demonstrate to them that, again, this is no ghost. This is the real thing. He's standing here, as it were, in the flesh. Really, in the flesh, for that matter. Now, if we stop just a moment, and I know if you've read the parallel passage to all this, you may be thinking, well, I know somewhere in this time frame, not only does he seek to help the brethren to understand these things, but he also upbraids them, and he does. We see there in Mark 16. Let me assure you here, brethren, uh, that when the Bible or when Jesus or when pastors or even your brethren, when they, yes, try to convince you of the truth or try to get you to go the right way that you ought to, they will use, I hope, loving entreaties. They will be very gracious and very kind. But that doesn't rule out that there needs to be at times a rebuke. Just because you're rebuked by someone doesn't mean necessarily that they don't love you. Now, true, if they've got a perverted heart, it doesn't matter what they're thinking and doing anyway. But those who do love us, those who are in the ministry such as myself who love you, and I have to give you these loving entreaties, and then I come back with, as it were, with a pat on the hind end saying, look now, you shouldn't be doing that. Well, this is biblical. It doesn't rule out true love, true charity, and true helpfulness. Because notice... In Mark 16, again, he says here, um, remember back in verse 13, neither they believed them. And it says, afterward, he appeared unto the eleven as they sat at meat. And notice, and upbraided them with their unbelief and hardness of heart, because they believed not them which had seen him after he was risen. So there is some way and somehow in this time frame that took place as well. Luke doesn't record it here. But Mark does for us. It's not a contradiction. It's just that Luke's not telling us all of the story at the moment. Neither does Mark tell us all that Luke says. That's just how these Gospels are laid out. doesn't mean there's a thing wrong with the Bible, as I'm going to show you here in just a few moments. But notice, uh, after all of this, and even in between all of this, he's still with the reasoning and trying to show them and to gently give them the, the help they need. They don't get it. And so he upbraids them. He rebukes them. For their unbelief. And you may ask, well, where's Thomas at this point? Well, it seems at this point that in our time frame that we're looking at, he wasn't there either. So this wasn't the 11 apostles that were here necessarily. It might have been 10 and some others. But in Luke's account, or excuse me, in John's account, we see some other things. John chapter 20. And believe me, this is where you earn your money trying to figure out all these Uh, gospel accounts and trying to put them in some kind of an order so you can see this and lay it out more plainly. And I admit it's difficult, and I'm certainly no expert in it. But So I'm just going to say it all happened. I'm just not sure when and where and how. So that's where I'll leave it at. But notice in verse 24 of John 20, But Thomas, one of the twelve, called Didymus, was not with them when Jesus came. The other disciples therefore said unto him, We have seen the Lord. But he said unto them, Except I shall see in his hands the print of the nails, and put my finger in the print of the nails, and thrust my hand into his side, I will not believe. 
Now, we may, and you hear that we call him the doubting Thomas. Well, it would seem that the other apostles were just as doubtful, weren't they? From Luke's account and from Mark's account, they were doubtful fellers too. So it's just not uh, Thomas here who gets uh, who should be getting all the bad rap that all the commentators are giving. That none of them believed as they ought. They all had a hardness of heart. Well, so what does Jesus do to Thomas? Well, here again, he condescends or he he stoops down, as it were, children to where Thomas is at in his thinking and in his unbelief and in his hardness of heart. And you remember, Thomas says, look, I ain't going to believe this until I stick my hands in his prints and touch everything about that I that I know was wrong with him. And you say he was here, so I want to see it myself. Well, notice what Jesus does. Verse 26. And after eight days, again, his disciples were with him or, or within, excuse me, and Thomas with them. Then came Jesus, the doors being shut and stood in the midst and said, peace be unto you. Then said he to Thomas, notice what he says to him, reach hither thy finger and behold my hands and reach hither thy hand and thrust it into my side and be not faithless, but believing. Now, you remember what Thomas says? I'm not going to believe this until I touch these things. And what does Jesus do? Thomas, here I am. Now you do what you thought you needed to do. And so Jesus graciously here allows Thomas to do this. And what happens after this? Verse 28. And Thomas answered and said unto him, My Lord and my God. And I know the JWs interpret that as exclamation. He was swearing here. But we don't believe such nonsense. What he was doing here was owning Christ to be just who he says he is. He is my Lord and he is my God. Now, Notice Jesus upbraids him. Verse 29. Jesus saith unto him, Thomas, because thou hast seen me, thou hast believed. Blessed are they that have not seen and yet have believed. So we see not only does he appear to those ten and gives them these reassuring and upbraiding factors, we see as well he gets Thomas into this also. Well, verses 44 through 46 He again, notice what he says. And, excuse me, verse 44, I was going down too far. And he said unto them, These are the words which I spake unto you while I was yet with you, that all things must be fulfilled, which were written in the law of Moses and in the prophets and in the Psalms concerning me. Then opened he their understanding that they might understand the Scriptures. Now notice here, How he handles them once again. Remember what he did to the two disciples on the road to Emmaus. He comes to them and they're they're troubled at heart. They said, you know, look, we there's this there's Jesus of Nazareth who's been we considered a prophet and now he's dead. And yet we heard he was going to rise again. And and some of the ladies have told us that's taken place, but we just don't know. So we read those two passages to you this morning and he begins to speak to them. And it says, not not Christ to have suffered those things. Verse 26 and enter into his glory. Verse 27 and beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounds unto them the things regarding himself, he says. Well, he does the same thing again here to these either 10 or 11, if Thomas is back at this point, I don't know. But the point is, he shows them out of the law of Moses, out of the prophets, and out of the Psalms, 
regarding himself. In other words, he takes the Old Testament scriptures and he begins to, as you see there in verse 45, then he opened he their understanding that they might understand the scriptures. Here again, such grace, patience, and long-suffering to some disciples who were at times very blind and hard-hearted because of their unbelief. Well, we do know that the scriptures do speak of Christ. He tells us, and we'll see this this morning in the sermon, search the scripture, for in, the, uh, for in them you think you have eternal life, and they are they which testify of me. If you can't see Christ in the Old Testament, there's something wrong with your eyesight. And it's, it needs to be checked because the Old Testament is full of the prophecies in regarding to Christ and especially in regards to what? Notice verse 46. This is what he says unto them as he opens their understanding. Thus it is written, and thus it behooved Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day, and that repentance and remission of sin should be preached in his name among all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. So the things that we know and we take for granted today as we take the New Testament down and begin to read and study and and preach, these fellows were having a hard time understanding until Christ came and opened their eyes to these things. And we'd have to admit the only reason we can see them today is the very same reason. It's because Christ does his work as our prophet, priest, and king, opening our eyes and our understanding to the scriptures themselves. Quoting an individual on this point, he says, uh, How cheering and how elevating and satisfying must have been their understanding of the scripture now. And the light of the wonderful events which else were so inexplicable. Blessed are they who search the scriptures and who get Christ's key to them all. And his opening of their own minds for this purpose. Men who have not Christ to teach them and to enlighten their natural reason may cavil, that is, make fun of all this. But the events will be shown to be full in accordance with all that the Bible has spoken. In other words, he's saying here, what a blessing it is to have the Bible truly opened up to us. Not because I'm such a wise and great preacher, but because God himself comes, as it were, and he teaches us in regards to the fullness of Scripture in regarding Jesus Christ. Yes, the unbeliever will laugh at us. Yes, the unbeliever will make fun of these truths that we hold very dear and wouldn't part with them even for life itself. We will deny self and life itself for these truths, we hope. At least we say that now. We could be like Peter, I recognize. But we say it now. We will go to the end, as it were, believing these things. And yet, yes, there will be those who will not. And it doesn't surprise us because Jesus himself said, The road to heaven is very, very narrow. Few there be that find it. Well, one of the two things he says are to be preached. Notice in verse 47 that repentance and remission of sin should be preached in his name among all nations beginning at Jerusalem. Repentance, of course, means a change of mind, which in time will bring a change of actions. So if you've had true repentance, it will be repentance towards God and faith in Jesus Christ. There will be a leaving of sin. You're no longer under that bondage and thus you go out and, as it were, and you're serving God. But notice something else that's to, to be repreached, and that is, he says here, remission of sins. The word there, remission, children, has the idea of taking away. We would call it today forgiveness or pardon. 
So we're to preach repentance and that there is pardon of sin in the name of Jesus Christ. And the news goes out, good news goes out this morning that those who are seeking forgiveness and who have it not, let me assure you this morning that they're only found in the sufferings and in the death of Jesus Christ. Again, notice verse 46. Thus it is written and thus it behooved Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day. There's the good news. That he did die for our sins. That he was buried and that he did rise again the third day. There, brethren, lies the forgiveness of sins. It's nowhere else. It's not any of your works. It's not how good you are, how many churches you may join, or how many times you've been dunked or sprinkled or poured on. It has no absolutely nothing to do with your standing or relationship to God and salvation. God does not look to those things. He looks to His Son to save. And we, brethren, or at least the ministers, are to testify to these wonderful soul-saving truths. Notice, and ye are witnesses of these things. There in verse 48. Well, then notice the remainder of the chapter. We have to go very quickly here. Verse 49 through 53. Or, yeah, 53. Uh, and behold, I send the promise of my Father upon you, but tarry ye in the city of Jerusalem until ye be endued with power from on high. What he's speaking of there is the promise of the Spirit of God coming upon them, as we see there on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, where the the Spirit of God is poured out upon them. That's the very thing that he's speaking of there. This is the thing that will endue them with power to be able to carry out that commission that God has given them. And then verses 50 through 53, we actually see his ascension into heaven. Again, the time frame. You can, you can work with that as you like, but this is probably after the, four, uh, the 40th day. And so here he is ready to go to heaven. And he led them out as far as the Bethany, he says. And he lifted up his hands and he blessed them. And it came to pass while he blessed them, he was parted from them and carried up into heaven. And they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy. This time this joy is in its right perspective, isn't it? This time they're believing with joy rather than being hard of heart and slow to believe. So they have great joy. And notice verse 53, and we're continuing continually in the temple, praising and blessing God and truly, amen, as he says there in the end. Well, we see here that he's carried up into heaven. We see after that, then they worship him, or as they're worshiping him too as well. And uh, notice something else. They continue together there in verse 53. Well, let me close with uh, some about five brief exhortations or applications from all this. First of all, the slowness of our hearts, brethren, to believe the truth. Men make faith to be a very easy thing, don't they? And again, as we'll show this morning, it is something that's very impossible apart from the grace of God. Those who deny that faith is hard or is impossible don't know something of the power of sin, nor do they know their own hearts. Because without the grace of God, none of us could or would believe. So if you do believe here this morning, don't thank me. Thank God, because He's the one who has revealed that faith to you. Secondly, Again, notice the patience and the long-suffering of our Lord Jesus with His disciples. And you know what? He's just as patient with us. 
Say, oh, well, that was great for them. And let me assure you, he's our prophet and priest and king just as surely as he was theirs. He is our Savior who is loving and tender-hearted to them or to us just as he was unto them. So we behold here something of the patience and the long-suffering of Jesus Christ. How many of us, again, as we said, have not believed or done what we ought to have done? Does he pluck us up and cast us into hell? He certainly has the right, but he does not. He deals with us patiently. Thirdly, again, our Lord appeals to the Scriptures about himself. Notice he says here that he takes them back to the law of Moses, to the prophets, and to the Psalms. That is, the Old Testament Scriptures. And he says, this is about me. And brethren, this is the only true and infallible source of our knowledge of Jesus Christ. You can't go out inside at night and look into the heavens and behold all of that and come up with the doctrine of the gospel. It just won't work. You can't stare down a tree and look how wonderfully it's made and say, aha, by the way, that teaches me about the saving grace of Jesus Christ. It's not there. It's only in the Scriptures. So how we ought to be thankful. But notice something else here. Our Lord here, or anywhere else for that matter, ever casts a single doubt regarding the truthfulness of the writings of Scripture. Rather, He appeals to them, doesn't He? So instead of saying, oh, this is not true, that part's not true, oh, by the way, let me tell you about this chapter, He doesn't do that. He takes the Old Testament Scripture to be just what it is, the very Word of God. He never cast doubts on it. In fact, again, as he told his father there in that high priestly prayer in John 17, sanctify them with thy truth. Thy Word is, not was, but is truth. So for those who cast doubt upon the Scriptures, how different their mind is from the mind of Christ. Do you cast doubt on the Bible? Then you don't have what Jesus has. The mind that says that this is the Word of God and that He appeals directly and authoritatively to the Scriptures, which are authoritative and sufficient. Fourthly, we see then our duty, especially as ministers of Christ, publicly that is, to preach the gospel. And that gospel is to consist of repentance towards God and faith in Jesus Christ. And that there is remission or forgiveness of sins or pardon through the sufferings and through the death of Jesus Christ. And nowhere else. We're not to preach up works, though we do for holy living, but never in order to gain heaven itself. That is only through the blood and righteousness of Jesus Christ and that received by faith alone. And then lastly, even though they went through all of this, you notice here in this chapter, this had to be some oh some nerve wracking things, some sorrowful times, some great joy as we see there at the close in verse fifty two. There was doubts and now there's faith. But notice what all of this does. It drives them to be together. And fellowship, doesn't it? Usually those kind of things make us go the other direction, don't they? 
We have doubts, we have fears, we have our sins, we have the joys and the, the faithfulness of our walk. We seem to want to just go do what we want. But in verse 53, it was otherwise with them. And they were continually in the temple. That is where they met for worship. Praising and blessing God. Amen. They did this corporately. That is together. There was no such thing as Lone Ranger Christians who just went out and did their thing. They were associated with the people of God. And they desired to be with the people of God. They didn't think they were so busy in life that they could not fellowship and have time not only to be with the brethren, but in particular there to bless and to praise God. Again, examine our hearts in these things, brethren. What's our attitude? What's our thoughts in regards to these things?